back into our series in Christology. Um, last time we were together, we uh, considered Christology in relation to the Lord's Supper. So just going forward, uh, we don't have a lot left in Christology. Um, uh, next month, we are going to start on Christ, his saving work with relation to merit um, and how we receive the merits and the graces from Christ. And what, you know, exactly we'll get more into what is grace and things like that. Um, following that, we'll talk about Christ and his relation to Israel and Christ being true Israel. And then we will consider Christ and the uh, the coming, the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, rather. <clears throat> To get back into Christology, though, I thought it was fitting to do a review of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not going to be exhaustive, and we're going to highlight really just two aspects of the work of Christ, which is going to be the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and what that means for us. Uh, but before we do that, uh, a quick word on the person of Christ, that is who he is, and also the life and obedience of Christ. The person of Christ and the life of Jesus Christ. When we consider the person of Christ, um, we have to ask ourselves, who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? And when we ask ourselves, who is Jesus Christ? Uh, Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. Truly God and truly man. So in order for us to understand the work of Christ, we have to understand the who of Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Because if you don't understand the who, the whoness of Christ and the whatness of Christ, then simply put, we're left to one who just dies for us, rises for us, but we don't understand why his death can be of infinite value, and we don't understand why his resurrection can merit our resurrection. How does Jesus Christ, for instance, how can a man die and his blood is able to atone for, if so, if God so decreed, so chose, to pay for the sins of all the peoples in a multitude of worlds. We say that the blood of a man sheds for your sin. Now, okay, we can say that's fine, right? Humanity for humanity. However, the problem with that is, but what about for all eternity? How is the blood of Christ even efficacious now that when we pray to God to forgive us of our sins, we're pleading that the blood of Christ would, would cover our sins? Well, there's something about them, the blood of Christ that enables his blood to be efficacious enough to cover not only my sin, but your sin. And not only your sin, but the one next to you. How is this able to happen? How is his resurrection able to be a resurrection where it is his outward vindication that he is a righteous man, but also it is our vindication as well. Well, first and foremost, again, Christ and the who and the what of Christ. Jesus Christ is, so if you were to look at Christ, right, if we were to see Christ, who is Jesus Christ? Well, of course, we would see a man. We would see a man, but is Christ merely a man? Is he merely a man? Well, of course, he's not merely a man, but he is God in flesh. God in flesh. Okay, so the basis of the who of Christ. So, for instance, the basis of who you are is your humanity. So you're a human person. 
the basis of the of the of, of Christ is going to be his divinity. He is a divine person. Now, mind you, this is not merely just me trying to um, give you an excursus on metaphysics and you know whoness and whatness and person things like that. But this means everything for your salvation because if Christ is not the God Man, and simply put, you're not saved. If he is not truly God, and if he's not able to satisfy the infinite justice of God, then we simply put, have no hope. We don't need a mere man. This is why an angel was not sent to us. But God in the flesh was sent to us. God in the flesh was sent to us. Not an angel in the flesh. Not another man, a super, you know, from Krypton or whatever, was sent to us. But God in the flesh. So Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. He's all of what it means to be God, and he's all of what it means to be man, save for sin. He's all of what it means to be God, all of what it means to be man. Okay, a quick point then on the life of Christ and his obedience. <clears throat> How do we say then, when Jesus Christ, the eternal son, when he, when he comes into be as a man, there are things that he was required to do according to the law of God in order to merit our salvation. Again, Christ doesn't merit for his own self, although there are things that Christ merits for himself. But he doesn't have to merit for himself certain things because he's in no need of salvation. But what Christ does is he comes on the scene and he merits for us and for our sake. One of the things that Christ had to do in order to be a perfect savior was for him to obey the law. Now notice, saints, when I say that Jesus Christ has to obey the law, that's interesting because, simply put, Jesus Christ, who is truly God, doesn't need to obey the law. He doesn't need to obey the law as God, but remember, he is truly man. And as truly man, he comes under the very same law that he gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. This is a work of humiliation. I mean, even being born by the Virgin Mary is a work of humiliation. But let's just say this then. Um, um, Christ has to undergo, he subjects himself, he comes under the very law that he gives to man so that we can be freed from the condemnation of the law. Now, how does Christ obey the law on our behalf? Well, we can look at various ways in which he does so, by being circumcised, by being baptized. But we consider Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, or with all your soul, with all your strength. And that is essentially what one must do to obey and fulfill the law. The problem is no one can do it. And even if you were able to do it, your worth of doing it is not of infinite worth. So Jesus Christ then steps on the scene and he offers to God... Not only, um, not only obedience to the law of God, but also perpetual obedience. It's everlasting. It's everlasting. Jesus Christ is the only one who loved the Lord, who loved his Father with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength. Now again, how does Jesus Christ love the Father? Since he is God, well, he loves the Father as man. As man. He obeys the law of God. Um, two texts. To consider five, uh, John 5, 19 through 20. Then Jesus answered and said to him, Most surely I say to you, the Son of God, or the Son cannot do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. 
For whatever he does, the Son does also like matter. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. In John 5.30, I can do nothing, or I can, uh, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, judge, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I did not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So all throughout the life of Christ, what we see is, even in his, even in his passions, right? Those things that tend to, even in our case, override reason, are always coming underneath the will of God. Christ is always perfectly in line with God and what God has called us to be and do. Like, for instance, many of your passions might be telling you to go to sleep because you've had an hour, you've ate, whatever. This is why we must be realigned, right, with the will of God, with what right reason tells us. And right reason always dictated... Our Christ. This is why in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he say? What does he say? My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Your will be done. Christ is always, always in line with doing the will of God. And in doing the will of God, he is the man, he is the one of Psalm 1. Who's always delighting in the law of God who sees the law of God and the will of God as a pleasure for him. And in doing so, he's the only one who can offer not only external obedience to the law, but also, as Christ tells us, internal obedience to the law. Internal obedience to the law. Mind you, and last thing I'll say on the law of Christ in relation to obeying the law for us, Christ does not obey the law in a wonderful, luscious garden. But rather, he obeys the law in the very opposite, the antithesis of the Garden of Eden. He obeys the law with not just one serpent, but a a multitude of serpents. And if you think that the pressure is high now, even us living in this world, think of the pressure, the satanic and demonic pressure in the days of Christ, in the days of Jesus Christ. Um, so Jesus Christ then obeys the law for us. He does what we could not do, and that is offer perfect and perpetual obedience to God. How is he able to do that? Because he's the God-man. A mere man could not offer perpetual obedience to God, but because Christ in his humanity is the very humanity of, of, of his divine personality, of God, then he's able to offer obedience, not just for you know, one month, two months, but also for, for, for all time. You know, this is why Jesus Christ, for instance, when Christ touches a leopard, how can Jesus Christ with a human hand touch a man and still heal him? I don't know if you ever thought about that before. He has a human hand, he touches another human, and he's able to heal by virtue of his human hand because he is God. By the virtue of touching one with his human hand, the efficacy and the power of his divinity sort of run through his humanity and he heals. Okay, let's now move on to the death of Christ because this is where it gets very, very, very fun. <clears throat> Exodus 34, 6-7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, 
there was a big debate during the medieval 13th century time of whether or not the eternal son would have came to save man if Adam never sinned. If Adam never sinned in the garden, would Christ still have came? Would the eternal son still have become incarnate? Another debate was whether or not God could have forgiven our sins even without Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but did we actually need Jesus Christ? Does the coming of Jesus Christ then sort of constrain God in that he must send his son? And if he doesn't send his son, then we're not forgiven. Or could God, if he so chose, could he forgive us by the word of his power? Could have he done so? <clears throat> Big debate. We can talk about that after if you like. Um, one of the great uh, one of the great theologians, Thomas Aquinas, says that sure, God can do whatever He wants, but it was more fitting. It was more fitting, and mind you, fittingness arguments are always revelational arguments. This is what this is what the Word of God says. It's 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 a uh, it's a mystery, of course, but it's more fitting that He sends His Son. Why? To show the boundless love of who he is. To show the boundless love of who he is. When Adam sinned in the garden, we became condemned. Therefore, we owe to God a payment in order to satisfy divine justice. In other words, there is no place, saints, where we can hide from God's punishment. There is absolutely no place where we can hide from God's punishment. Well then, if there's no place that we can hide from God's punishment, and when Adam sinned in the garden, that we have this, have this payment due to God, then how does God get paid? In other words, loosely speaking. It's like owing someone a million dollars. None of us in this world, maybe some of you, I don't know, have a million dollars. How are we ever going to pay it? It's out of our reach. Jesus Christ comes into the picture. How does Christ satisfy the justice of God? When we speak of satisfaction, Richard Muller says, it means making amends or reparation. Specifically, the making amends for sin required by God for forgiveness to make to take place. In other words, to satisfy means to repair. To make satisfaction means to repair something. For doing or making up a wrongdoing. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 5, 18-19. All this is from God, whom through Christ reconciled us or to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. At the heart of satisfaction, then, saints, is reconciliation. Friendship, you can even say. At the heart of satisfaction, what Christ offers to the Father is Bringing together two parties that were at odds with one another. Now we're back to this crucial question. How can then, how can one or we who are finite make a satisfaction to an infinite God? How is this possible? The canons of Dort say, since however we ourselves cannot give this satisfaction, we cannot bring this fellowship and friendship back together or deliver ourselves from God's anger, 
God in His boundless mercy has given to us a guarantee, His only begotten Son, who, who was made to be sin and a curse for us in our place on the cross in order that He may give satisfaction for us. Man cannot make satisfaction to deliver ourselves from God's justice and wrath. The Bible is clear on this question that we all have become uh, like, uh, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteousness deeds are like a polluted garment. Man cannot satisfy God and the justice of God because, or rather not because man can't do enough. I mean, you cannot satisfy the justice of God not because you're unable to do enough, but rather you cannot satisfy the justice of God because of the value of what you're offering to God. Again, you cannot give to God that which not you don't uh, uh, possess, goods, external goods, but rather who you are. Who you are. <clears throat> Saints, why do people deserve an eternity in hell? Maybe you've asked that question before in your life. How can one sin cause man now and the rest of mankind to spend an eternity in hell? It doesn't make any sense. Well, saints, remember when Adam sat in the garden, we have to remember the whom he was sinning against is an infinite being. And we know this in our legal system, right? The punishment must fit the crime. So Christ, or rather Adam, sins against an infinite person, or infinite, an infinite God. What's the punishment? An infinite punishment. An infinite punishment. You sin against an eternal God, you spend an eternity in hell. That's essentially why people spend an eternity in hell. Because of whom they sinned against. So in our case... How do we make satisfaction to an infinite eternal God? How can an infinite debt amount or infinite amount of debt be removed from our account? You see, saints, and this is what you have to understand that before before Christ saved you, that you owe to God an infinite debt. Not just you are in in the negative balance of, you know, a trillion dollars. But you are in a, a negative infinite balance. There is absolutely nothing you could give to God before Christ saved you. Absolutely nothing. <clears throat> so then how does man be reconciled to God? John the Baptist says in John 1.29, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now whether or not you want to say the world is elect, non-elect. Let's just say this. There is enough worth and, and value in Christ where he could took away the sins of all the, of, of the world. Jesus is the only answer to satisfaction and reconciliation. Jesus is the only answer. He's the only one who could remove the infinite debt that we owe to God. He's the only one who could satisfy the justice of God. Then how does Christ do this then? How does Jesus Christ satisfy the justice and wrath of God? <clears throat> there are some that say that Jesus satisfies the wrath of God because the wrath of God was poured on him on the cross. You might have heard that before. You might have grown up hearing that. Or the reason why the Father 
And the reason why your sin is expiated on the cross is because on the cross, the father beat his son. I mean, that's a gross way of talking about it, but essentially you can say something like that. There is an endless amount of stored up anger, and you've known this before, I'm sure, in your past life, before you were saved, that when someone did something bad to you, just the over amount of time anger was storing up, that man, if you ever just caught that person, you would unleash all of your anger and fury on them. Well, people want to think that God is like that. That, that there is a storing up, and I mean, there, metaphorically, there is a storing up. The, 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 um, the un, the unregenerate, uh, those who have not bowed their knee to Christ will re, will, will receive a judgment that was fitted just for them. But we aren't to think that on the cross, the Father just had all this anger stored up, and then when Christ is on the cross, he just, he just pouring it all out on Jesus Christ. And based upon that pouring out, people say, well, God um, thought it was enough. He had enough of beating his son. That's not how we would think of Christ's satisfaction. <clears throat> Some people say that Jesus satisfies the wrath of God by living a life of perfect obedience, which climaxed at the cross or at his death on the cross. But I will say, saints, um, that Jesus Christ satisfies the worth, or rather the wrath and justice of God, because of the great value and worth of his person. Again, Jesus Christ satisfies the justice of God because of the great value and worth of his person. The canons of Dort say, this death of God's Son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice of satisfaction for sins, it is of infinite worth and value, and hear this, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. Again, Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and the great value of his sacrifice is worthy enough to pay and atone for the sins of the whole world. Otherwise, we could say this, that baby Jesus, when he was circumcised, if he did shed blood, that shed blood there, that little drop of blood was worth enough to pay for the sins of an infinite amount of people in an infinite amount of worlds. That's how valuable the Son of God who became man is. That's how valuable. Um, one analogy, I mean, women, you know this well. For instance, if I gave my wife... Um, um, a pop ring and I say here I love you um, she would say thank you and probably throw it in the throw it in the in the in the uh, cupboard and probably never see it again but if I gave to her a beautiful luscious Tiffany ring from, <laughs> from Tiffany's she would look at it and she would say how am I deserving of this 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 is this is out of control and the reason is we know this well, because we know of things that are of value. We know of things that are worth something. And see, this is the greatness of, of the satisfaction that was given or made for us, is that the Father does not send merely just an angel, but he sends his only Son. Again, the cross is a revelation of God's love. Boundless love, infinite love. 
and he sends his only son. The death of Christ is of such great value and worth for the reason that the person who suffered is not only truly man, but also truly God. And because Christ is an infinite person, his suffering is of infinite value, even if his suffering only and solely is according to his human nature. Richard Moeller says the source then of the merits of Christ is the person of Christ who performs the work of satisfaction. Since the person is the divine word, the infinite second person of the Trinity, the work performed by that person, even though accomplished through the instrumentality of his human nature, must be infinite. In other words, in other words, even though Christ suffers as man, his suffering is of infinite worth because his humanity is the very humanity of the Son of God. Just as if I was to somehow, some way, grow an arm or an arm was attached to me, you think of like a Terminator arm, you know, it's not really a flesh, but it's uh, of metal or whatever, and it was attached to my body, whatever my body does will be received by my fake hand or fake arm. And that's how we would kind of, you know, in a weird and illogical way, think of Christ's human nature and how can Christ's humanity, how can Christ's humanity um, be able to satisfy the justice of God? And it's because the divinity of Christ is always and ever will be um, the humanity of Christ. Jesus Christ perfectly satisfies the infinite justice of God by offering his infinite self. And saints, Christ's suffering is of great value to God. Thomas Aquinas says, Christ, by suffering out of love and obedience, gave to God more than was required to compensate for the offenses of the whole human race. And so Christ's passion was not merely sufficient, but superabundant. A superabundant um, demonstration of the love of God. <clears throat> Notice what Thomas Quines is saying. He's saying not only was Christ's sacrifice sufficient, but it was super abundant. It was super abundant. Meaning that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was more than enough. Was more than enough to satisfy the justice of God. <clears throat> Jesus Christ offers a most precious and perfect sacrifice. Something that is more valuable than the crime that was committed. He offers himself. Meaning Jesus Christ more fully satisfies the justice of God in offering his infinite self out of love and obedience. And we're going to touch on this in just a few weeks. But it's not enough for really just Christ to offer an external offering. But also Christ must offer an internal offering. I don't know the weight of, of that. And maybe when we think of the work of Christ and rather the death of Christ, we think, well, yeah, he's dying. That's enough. It's not merely him dying. It's what he's presenting to the Father. That's more than enough. Not just an outward body that is perfect, but also an inward contrition for the sins of his people, but also inward charity. That he gives to the Father. You see, it was the inward charity of Christ that moved him to say, in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. 
He knows the sins of his people, not that he's a sinner, but he knows of what they are losing when they don't choose God. When God is not their blessedness and reward. We talked about, I told, uh, Pastor Tony talked about the, the worm that eats at the conscience of people in hell. Well, one of the ways you can think of the worm that eats at their conscience is they cannot have God as their blessedness and reward. That is, if the great height of being a Christian is to have God as our blessedness and reward and receive the beatific vision and to have joy, then the great loss of those who are in hell is to not have that. Is to not have God as their blessedness and ultimate supreme joy. Is to see the good and saying, I cannot reach it. And Christ suffers out of an exceeding amount of love and obedience. And when he goes to the cross. God is more pleased with that demonstration of acknowledging the severity of sin and the holiness and the justice of God. That Lord, my people have sinned against you so great and you are so great and grand and deserve this infinite offering. He sees that demonstration. And the father says, I'm more pleased with that demonstration of love than punishing the elect in hell for all eternity. Two quotes from John Owen to bring this home. Even by taking upon him the whole punishment due to sin and in God was more pleased with the obedience, offering, and sacrifice of his son than displeased with the sins and rebellions of all the elect. John Owen then says, It is not then by the outward suffering of a violent and bloody death which was inflicted on him by the most horrible wickedness that every that ever human nature uh, uh, break forth into. Nor was it merely his enduring penalty the law that was the means of our deliverance, but the voluntary giving up of himself to be a sacrifice and these holy acts of obedience was that upon which, in a special manner, God was reconciled to us. In other words, how are you reconciled to God? By God the second person of the Trinity, giving himself for you. That's simply it. So when you think of how are we reconciled, don't think of Christ on the cross being beaten. Don't think of because he had to be whipped before he went to the cross. He ha- you know, And that right there, the, 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 the blood and the violence that was shown to Christ is what made the Father say, yes, I will accept that sacrifice. But rather, it is what he is offering to the Father that enables us, that enables you to have your sins forgiven, not just for a week, for a month, for a year, but for all eternity. Because the very blood that was shed was the blood of God. Even if he suffers as man. That is a great summary of what we see in the satisfaction of Christ, that we need an eternal, infinite sacrifice to counter the infinite and eternal punishment that we owe to God. And the great news of the gospel is that we have an infinite and eternal sacrifice in Jesus Christ, the eternal son who became flesh for us. Jesus Christ satisfies the wrath and justice of God by offering a most pleasing aroma of sacrifice, which is himself. This is why we can say, like Horatius Bonner, on merit, not my own, I stand. On doings which I have not done, merit beyond, beyond that 
or what I can claim, doings more perfect than my own, upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, another's death, another's life. What you owe to God is simply what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Before we close, saints, um, I want to consider now uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, and how his resurrection is for us and our justification. Let me just read one text for you. Romans 5, verses 16 through 17. The gift is not like that which came through the one who makes, who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one offense, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many offenses, resulting in justification. For it, by the one offense of one, death reigned through the one. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through one Jesus Christ. Saints, when we think about Adam's disobedience in the garden, we tend to think of what we receive from Adam is merely just now we are sinners and we do outwardly sinful things. And yes, that is true that what we receive from Adam is a corruption of nature, but we ask, you have to understand to get to know the full orbit of our salvation in Christ that when Adam sit in the garden, we merely just don't receive a corruption of nature, but also we receive the title of guilt. We are guilty before God. We are guilty before God. And because we are guilty before God, what do we owe to God? What's the sentence? It's death. Death is the sentence. You are guilty in Adam, and because so, you have a legal status of guilt, and this legal status of guilt says that you must die. You must die. So before you came to Christ, you were in pretty bad shape. Not only did you owe an infinite debt to God, but also you were morally corrupt, but also hanging above your head was a legal status of guilty. And you were pretty much a criminal on death row awaiting to die. That's who you were before Christ saved you. So then what does Christ do for us? Jesus Christ, as one who stands in our place, is condemned for us. Meaning, Christ, as our representative, pays the punishment of our sin, which is death. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans 4.25. He says, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions. In other words, Christ was delivered over to, to our death. He bears our transgressions, that is, he bears our offense. The offense that we made to God, he bears that. Not that he was offended, but as a covenant head, as our representative, he bears our offense. He says, I will undergo their sentence of condemnation. Well, what's the sentence of condemnation? Death. I will die for them. And saints, what we have at the cross is we don't have Jesus Christ in the outward gates of Jerusalem, but we have is he's on a high hill on Golgotha, publicly before the world, shamed, condemned publicly. You know, he wasn't just one who goes to the execution chair and only eight people are allowed to view. And then we only hear about what happened when they put the needle in that person. But no, before the world, high lifted up, right 
smack down in the middle. He died a death and was publicly condemned for us. Now this was a right thing to do. Now you might say, how is this a right thing to do? It's a right thing to do because he is our, he's our representative. He takes on our legal status of guilt. He takes on our legal status of guilt and he dies what we deserve. And the resurrection then is so essential, saints, because what you have at the death of Christ is you have Jesus Christ condemned in our place. But if Christ is not raised, then he, again, he, as well as us, are still under the condemnation of God. Again, if Christ is not raised from the dead, not only us, but he, because he takes on our offense, he is under the condemnation of God. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. One theologian has said, for Jesus to remain dead would, would be evidence that the one who appeared to be perfectly obedient was something less than perfectly righteous. Meaning, if Christ is still in the tomb, then what you have merely is just a man who did good things. So, because of Adam's sin, we are condemned, and Jesus Christ undergoes our condemnation on the cross. And what we have in the resurrection, saints, is that since Jesus Christ underwent our condemnation on the cross, since he bore our sins and paid the penalty of our sins on the cross, the resurrection of Christ should first and foremost be seen as Christ's justification. Christ's justification. <clears throat> Jesus Christ, in rising from the dead, and this is, this is so beautiful, when Christ rises from the dead, his status of condemned is overturned to a status of justified. Remember, saints, he is publicly condemned. He is condemned in our place. And what we have at the resurrection is he's publicly, before the world, declared righteous. Declared righteous. He is raised to new life. We read of this in 1 Timothy 3.16 by common confession. Great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated, declared righteous by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taking up to glory. Christ's resurrection then was our and his vindication by the Spirit. It is him being declared righteous. And notice, saints, Christ, as we begin to close, is declared righteous in two ways. First, he's declared righteous with respect to the wrongful verdict that was had or issued against him by the sinful human court. Remember, what you have at the mock trial of Christ is you have him on one side, Barabbas on the other. Whom do the people want? They chose Barabbas. So what we have then at the resurrection is you have that wrongful verdict overturned. Mind you, saints, this is also going to happen to you one day. Listen to me now. The world does not see you as righteous. One day the world will see you as righteous. One day that status of righteous in Christ that you have and God knows and your people around you know, 
The world and your neighbors will see. Read the last chapter of Malachi. But also, he's declared righteous in the sight of God. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus Christ was not righteous before he died. But what this means is at the resurrection of Christ, God publicly declares that his son is righteous and rewards him and gives to him new life because of the life that he lived unto obedience. So at the resurrection, then, saints, Jesus was acquitted of his unjust crime by the world and was acquitted for us as sinners before God. Saints, as we come to a close, how does the resurrection relate then to our justification? How does our resurrection relate to our justification? Justification being that legal status of, of innocent, of declared righteous before God. How does Christ's resurrection then relate to God saying that you are no longer a sinner, but you are a saint and a child of God? We all believe that. <laughs> Right? <laughs> that we are all justified solely and, and only on the basis of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Well, how does this relate then? G.K. Beale says Jesus' own resurrection was an end time event that vindicated or justified him from the wrong verdict pronounced by the world's court. The vindication of God's people against the unjust verdicts of their accusers was to happen at the eschaton. But this has been pushed back to Christ's resurrection and applied to him. Maybe you didn't get this the first time. Let me give it to you one more time. The vindication of God's people against the unjust verdicts of their accusers was to happen at the end of the eschaton. But this has been pushed back to Christ's resurrection and applied to him. This is why when Paul says there is no condemnation, there is now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus, the Jews can understand it because... That pronouncement of no condemnation is supposed to be reserved for the end, for the judge, the last day judgment. Oh, saints, I hope you hear this gospel news here. This is this is the apex of the gospel here, that what you would have received at the very end has been pushed further into history. In other words, you don't have to wait to the very end to know that you're a, 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 a child of God. You can know right now, young people, you can know right now that you are a child of God. Old person, person who thinks they know this already, bask in this right now currently. You are a child of God. Why? Because Christ has been raised and that in time event of vindication from God has been and has intruded into the present. And Jesus Christ is raised, not for himself only. But remember, as the as we talked about the totus Christus, as the whole Christ, when is Christ does not raise just merely one body. He raises the body of Christ with him. This is what the resurrection means for us, saints. Is that not just merely in the future, we're going to have our bodies back. But rather, right now in the present, we have eternal life with Christ. This is why our life is hidden with and in Christ. As Christ is raised then, that end time event of us and us needing and desiring to know, have I done enough? Will God accept me? We can look at the resurrection of Christ and say, yes, Christ has done enough. I will be accepted in Christ. 
In other words, saints, if you haven't believed upon Christ, if your faith is weak now, hold on to Jesus Christ. Hold on to the perfect sacrifice that he's offered to you and hold on to the perfect and the glorious resurrection that he was gloriously rewarded and given because that is for us. I wasn't going to talk about the um, ascension and the second coming, but we will talk about that in further time. <clears throat> Saints, Christology, as we are going forward, I hope that is been of some use to you, and I hope that you will continue to be encouraged to know about your Savior. I said this to a meeting that we had with the deacons yesterday. There's many of us in our life that come across things that are very um, interesting to us. Saints, learning about Jesus Christ and the intricacies of Christ and what he has done and who he is, and then also learning about God and our and who he is, saints, that should be for all of us the most interesting thing in the world. All of us. The heck with food, the heck with movies, the heck with politicians, the heck with gas prices, with social media. The most interesting thing in our lives and what's going to carry us and keep us is going to be our God, one in Trinity, and our Christ, one in two natures. That is the great mystery of our faith, saints, and that is we are to hang all of our hope upon. And so, saints, as we continue to march on in Christology and also in Revelation, let's bask in this great, great supernatural knowledge that Christ has given to us. Let's pray.